Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss coming to you from Isolation Studios in downtown Toronto. Now if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that every now and again I pop up with three suggestions of movies that you can watch to fill the hours, the minutes, the seconds, while we're all doing the right thing and staying inside. It's stuff to do between the time that you change out of your morning pajamas into your afternoon pajamas and then possibly just before you change into your nighttime pajamas. At least that's what's been happening around here. So there's three new ones today. Perhaps you've seen some of them. Perhaps it would be a reminder of a movie that you always want to see and you never get around to, or maybe it'd just be fun to revisit some of these. The first one we'll talk about is the one that made Jennifer Lawrence a star, but she wasn't a star at the first time I met her, but you could tell it would only be a matter of time until she was. It was 2010, years before she would win an Academy Award or be known internationally as Katniss Everdeen. She was a struggling newbie with just a handful of credits, but a great big buzz surrounding her performance in Winter's Bone. Peter Travers, writing in Rolling Stone, said, Her performance is more than acting. It's a gathering storm. Her steely but vulnerable take on an Ozark teenager who would do anything to keep her family together after her meth-cooking dad skipped bail and put the family home in danger of being repossessed was garnering good reviews and the usual phrases like breakout performance were being thrown around, but this time it felt different. It felt real. I was asked to host a question and answer period with her after a screening of the film at a theater in Toronto, but first we planned a quick dinner with a publicist at a nearby hotel. Now I've eaten with a lot of actors who order a piece of steamed fish, no butter, no oil, and then rather than actually put it in their mouth, simply move it around the plate until the waiter takes it away. Not Jennifer Lawrence. She ordered a steak dinner with sides and ate it all while showing us a cell phone snap of her costume for the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo audition. As she chatted, laughed, and enjoyed dinner, it was apparent what she wasn't. She wasn't precious or overwhelmed at being on the cusp of something big. She was doing something rare in this business, being herself and enjoying the ride. In other words, the woman you now see photobombing Taylor Swift uh, on the red carpet is the real deal. Someone completely at ease with herself in a business that usually doesn't allow for that. Later, on the way to the theater, she opted not to take the provided limo. Instead, we walked down Bloor Street. It was on the chilly side, so she draped my suit jacket over her shoulders, and along the way, one of her high heels caught in a crack in the pavement and snapped off. Rather than hobble down the street, she kicked off both shoes and walked barefoot the rest of the way, her broken designer shoes in hand. Now at the theater, I don't really remember what we talked about on stage. When I think back on the night, I reflect on the sweet spot she was in career-wise. She was about to become one of the youngest Oscar nominees ever for Best Actress in a Leading Role, and yet there wasn't an ounce of pretension about her. Charisma? Yes. Talent? Absolutely. In spades. Here's a little taste of the interview we did in the afternoon just before we had dinner and went to the Q&A. I asked her if she did any research into the Ozark drug culture before she made the movie. Have a listen and then track down Winter's Bone. You know, I didn't really research the drug culture because Re isn't involved in it and it wasn't really necessary. I did research the people and, and the relationships with one another and especially the way they spoke because I'm from Kentucky so I have a southern accent but it's very different. Um, 
And that that was really all I needed to research because I didn't. I, I don't. I don't think that you know. Re wasn't interested in that side of it at all. Yeah, and if the motivation had something to do with drugs, then I would have researched. And also being there, you're surrounded by it um, anyway. The area code I think is four one seven, and that's also another a nickname for math. Right. <laughs> and that's like that's how much there is there. So I, I couldn't help but learn a lot while I was there. But it wasn't something. It, it wasn't something that I necessarily felt like I had to dive into in order to be become the best re that I could be. The truth is, most of it's all instinctual. So I I know why I'm doing what I'm doing and like why I'm not crying in this scene, but I'll cry in this one. Um, it's hard for me to explain. I think you just when you start building this character and getting to know, it's kind of like getting to know your best friend all over again. Um, and I don't know. I think it's also a huge collaboration between Deborah and, and you know any other actor that I'm I'm acting with. Few tales of sex, drugs, and rock and roll contain as much sex, drugs, and rock and roll as the tawdry tale of The Runaways, an underage all-girl rock band they build themselves as genuine jailbait, spawned from the Sunset Strip's late 1970s CD underbelly they imploded in 1979 after four tumultuous years. The Runaways, a film written and directed by former video helmer Floria Sidges Monday, is set back when you could still drink a bottle of stolen booze in the shade of the Hollywood sign without being arrested for trespassing. The movie focuses on two glue-sniffing, glam-rock-obsessed tough girls named Joan Jett, played by Kristen Stewart, and Cherie Curry, played by Dakota Fanning. Disaffected SoCal teens, they see an exit from their mundane suburban lives through rock and roll. Unfortunately, their ticket out comes in the form of impresario Kim Fowley, a record producer and self-proclaimed King Hysteria. He cobbles together the band, trains them to be rock stars, convinced that these girls are going to be bigger than the Beatles. Before they can play Shea Stadium, however, the band breaks up knee-deep in ego, drug abuse, and bad management. Sidious Monday has made the movie equivalent of an ear-blistering blast of feedback. Like the band's 2 minute and 45 second guitar punk tunes, The Runaways is loud, fast, and dirty. If you want depth, wait for the rock and roll bio of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Here, Sidious Monday leaves behind the surreal feel of her videos and visual art, opting instead for a straightforward, although probably mostly fictional, retelling of the rapid rise and equally rapid free fall of the band. I asked Floria Sidious Monday how she walked the fine line between portraying the raw, sleazy aspect of the music industry in Los Angeles in the 1970s and the innocence of the teenagers in the band. Yeah, it's kind of walking a fine line, isn't it? Sort of, um, you know, I wanted the picture very raw, but um, it was also about, you know, these young girls and how young they were and sort of innocent to this world um, before it kind of started. Like, I'm talking more about Cherie. Um, in that aspect where she starts off not saying, I'm not going to say that, to becoming the yeah. cherry bomb. So that transformation. But, um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a time of experimentation, you know, and that happens only, I think, when you're young. It's that time when well, you're I, trying to find your identity. Kristen Stewart is the name above the title star, and she does bring her brooding Brando best to the role of Joan Jett, but this movie belongs to Dakota Fanning and Michael Shannon, who hands in a flamboyant performance. 
expanding shines, but in a much more low-key way. Low-key, but not low wattage. Fowley describes her outer lair as part Bardot, part Bowie, but she plays Cherie Curry as Damaged Goods, a young girl with a crappy home life and a faraway look in her eye. As Kim Fowley, Michael Shannon has more than a passing resemblance to Beef from Phantom of the Paradise, and like that character, he is campy, dangerous, and slightly unhinged. An egomaniac, he introduces himself as Kim Fowley, record producer. You've heard of me. It's a bravura performance that could have gone very wrong in the hands of a less committed actor, but Shannon pulls it off with a plum. I asked Floria Sujus Monday about meeting the real-life Kim Fowley. Wow, I mean, when you meet Kim Fowley, you don't forget him. Yeah. And he came in with a soundtrack uh, to his whole interview. He put in a soundtrack. And <laughs> it was just music that he had made. And, and, and he actually had a voiceover to it. It was really great. It was amazing. And then he came in with boxes of books, of all the books that he'd been mentioned in. And there was some, you know, oh, yeah, all these musical artists, piles and piles and articles and things. And he came very well prepared, but it was like watching a performance. Yeah. It, was a, it really was amazing. I asked Michael Shannon if he was ever afraid of going too far while playing the flamboyant record producer. I don't really look at things that way. Uh, I don't really uh, mind. Uh, I, I, I'm not really afraid of this whole uh, notion of going over the top. I don't really know what that means. Right. I mean, if people say, you know, something's larger than life, I'm like, well, what's larger than life? What could possibly be larger than life? I mean, life's pretty large. I mean, I've seen all different kinds of people in my day, and some people uh, talk quietly, and some people talk loudly, and different people do different things. So I don't really... I, this whole concept of believing someone, like seeing somebody in a movie and believing them, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what that means. I mean, it's like believing what? I mean, movies are an illusion, you know? I mean, every movie you've ever seen in your life is a fabrication of something. It's not, there's nothing to believe, you know? It's a story, so. Right. I'll get that, but he's based on a real person, though. So did you, I guess maybe the, a, a different question would be to ask then, did you feel any responsibility to the real Kim Fowley uh, as you were portraying him? Any responsibility? Well, yeah, I felt a huge amount of responsibility yeah. towards Kim. I mean, uh, yeah, anytime you're playing a real person but that uh, that responsibility is just um to get as close to your impression of who that person is as possible which just had to do with you know studying him uh, constantly while i was working on a movie and you know hoping that that translated into my into the accurateness of my performance you know i mean nobody Nobody can literally become somebody else, like change the molecules in your body. I mean, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a process and you get as close as you can. But while you're doing it, yeah, you, you do everything in your power to make it happen. Yeah. Kim Fowley described the music of the Runaways as the sound of hormones raging, and in her film, Sigis Monday transcends the formulaic aspects of the story by capturing the gritty spirit of in-your-face teenage rebellion. Finally, we have a look at a smooth ride fueled by great performances. There are Driving Lessons in Learning to Drive, a film starring Patricia Clarkson and Sir Ben Kingsley, but learning how to parallel park or merge into traffic isn't the point of the story. 
Clarkson is literary critic Wendy, a recent divorcee who hires Darwin, played by Sir Ben Kingsley, to teach her how to drive so she can travel to upstate New York to visit her daughter. Still stinging from the separation, she learns to navigate Manhattan's mean streets as the unlikely pair form a bond teaching one another about life and love. Learning to Drive is a Prius hybrid, a well-meaning movie that isn't as flashy as other contemporary models. It is, however, a smooth ride fueled by the lead performances. The lessons learned here aren't relevatory, but because the characters are so compelling, the simple metaphors kick into gear. Clarkson is a live wire, a fiery woman torn between a lust for life and the shattering realization that in the wake of the divorce, her life is inalterably changed. Kingsley brings warmth, vulnerability, and charm that nicely mirrors her heartbreak. I asked Patricia Clarkson about working on the film and why it was so important to film in New York City. If I could do Learning to Drive Part <laughs> 2, 3, 4, 5, <laughs> it, it, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, I would shoot the rest of my life sitting in a car with Sir Ben. Or it could be learning to fly. Next <laughs> or... <laughs> yeah, learning to fly. Uh, I could be, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm game. Yeah. Sir Ben and I in a cockpit, I'm ready. <laughs> I, I, um, it was, it was a glorious, beautiful experience to finally sit in that car with glorious Sir Ben and Isabel Quachette mm -hmm. behind the camera. You know, she's the operator. She's, she's the she shoots. And she does so it all, yeah. She's formidable. And she's a brilliant, brilliant lady and a uh, brilliant woman. And, um, and we shot it all in New York. We didn't fake a yeah, damn yeah, thing. Yeah. Every single thing you see in that film is the real thing. Right. We really shot in Queens. <laughs> we really shot going over the bridge. We really shot in a New York apartment. We really shot, you know, we shot in everything you see. Those are the real streets of right. Manhattan. It's the Upper West Side, everything. And it was so, it's, and I think it is the authentic. I think it lends an authenticity mm -hmm. to the film, which was des it desperately needed. Yeah. And that's also part of the problem of getting the film made, is there was no way to cut the costs. Shooting in New York is still expensive. Right. And so we couldn't do it really cheap. We couldn't do it on the fly. Yeah. We had to have money to shoot in New York City. Learning to Drive is a touching movie that isn't so much about the destination, but about the journey and the words. The pleasure of the film is taking the trip and listening to these two professionals deliver the words so beautifully. I asked Sir Ben Kingsley what he hoped people would take away from the movie. Here's what he said. It's a good question and I don't want to dodge it. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, we don't want to imprint anything onto right. what they may or may not see. I always hope, whenever I leave a great art gallery, my vision's altered. Right. Whenever I, I remember going to see the Impressionists, and I, I, oh, the light was different when I walked out. Everything was, looked different when right. I walked outside the gallery. Right. And I hope that just for those wonderful few seconds, or even minutes, that the world looks different when they leave the cinema. Well, that's it. Three more movies to help pass the seconds, minutes, hours, and days until we can finally touch our face in public once again. I hope you enjoy all these movies. I hope you listen in next time. We will get through this one movie at a time. I'm Richard Krause. Thanks for listening.